Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins. If you're attending the NAMM show in January, stop by the Collings booth to say hello to the team, get hands-on with their selection of customised acoustics and electrics, and check out some exciting new prototypes they're working on for 2024. They'll also have a few of their world-class artists on hand demoing various instruments. And if you can't attend, don't forget to follow their Instagram and Facebook accounts throughout the show for photos, videos, and the latest news. Collings guitars are hand-built from the sound up in Austin, Texas. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. If one of your 2024 resolutions is to improve as a musician, Peghead Nation is the place to go. They have 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music. Courses cover bluegrass, old time, Irish music and swing, plus lessons dedicated to improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 a month and you can add more for $10. Try any course free for a month with the promo code JAMALONG. Make 2024 a year of more music at pegheadnation.com. Hi, this is Matt, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who loves bluegrass. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast that helps you dive deeper into the music we all love. Um, this is episode two of the Earl Scruggs 100th birthday tribute. And last week we had an episode that had some really cool chats with Tony Trishka, um, with Kristen Scott Benson and with Alan Mundy. And we're diving further in with some more cool guests this week. I'm going to have for you Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown and Tim O'Brien. And we're chatting about all sorts of stuff from what makes Earl so special. Uh, Jerry talks a lot about Flat and Scruggs and sort of how the band worked and the choreography and the sound. Um, Alison talks about kind of Earl and the context that he existed in in terms of like the the music landscape, the media landscape, really interesting stuff in there. And Tim talked a lot about Earl's role in the development of Bluegrass, but also we talked about Louise Scruggs and the role that she played in his life. And Tim talks about spending a bit of time with Earl as well. Um, So there's some really cool stuff coming up. If you haven't heard episode one, have a listen to that as well. Um, They're not in any particular order. You don't need to hear them in sequence. It's just a bunch of cool chats with people who are hugely passionate about Earl and his music. Um, So first up, we're going to have Jerry Douglas, and he's going to have a bit of a chat about what inspired his band Earls of Leicester um, and how essentially Earl Scruggs was the first, some of the first sounds he heard. Um, So here comes Jerry Douglas. I read something in a Rolling Stone article you said there was no bluegrass until there was Earl Scruggs. Bill Munro was looking for it, but it wasn't until he auditioned Earl when he finally found it. And I think that's such a cool place to start because so many people talk about Bill Munro as the father of bluegrass and, you know, Earl's contribution was huge. Yeah. Yeah, as I said, I've said before so many times that I don't think there would be bluegrass music. I don't think we'd be hearing the, the same music that we are if it hadn't been for Earl Scruggs. Don't think so. I mean, other five-string banjos players were out there, and they were playing with a three-fingered roll, but nothing like him, nothing like the freight train that he was, you know, and that uh, he was, when he stepped up to the mic, he was totally in command, and you were following him. And and it wasn't into unknown territory for you, but it was, it was uh, it had something on top of it that you'd never seen before. Sort of like that kind of thing, but it, I think when when those guys, I, I would like to have seen their faces the first time they saw 
Earl Scruggs open up, you know, on something. I don't think, (laughs) I mean, it would be the same as, you know, hearing Stefan Grappelli for the first time or some musician Django or, or, you know, Clapton or, you know, Jeff Beck, some, something like that. Elvis, you know, it's, it was a defining moment when, when he, when he played the banjo with Bill Monroe, it changed everything. And it's so hard to imagine like what it was like hearing that for the first time, because that sound is so much like, if anything says bluegrass, it's that banjo style probably above everything else. Yeah. We're permeated with it now. But it was something unheard of at that point. No one knew what it was. And and that's why he got sta- five standing ovations at the end of the first song, at the end of the f- first set that they played, that he played with Bill Monroe on the Opry. They couldn't get enough. They had to, like, pull him off the stage, you know. They, they had to finally quit. They couldn't play more than five times the song. It's, it's nuts. It doesn't happen. And, uh, you know, when the Earls played the rhyme in the first time, uh, it was the first time that Johnny Warren had actually played on the Opry stage, even though he had been there countless times with his dad when he was playing with Flat Scruggs and his Paul was playing Flat Scruggs. And he played Black Eyed Susie or Durham's Bull, Durham's Bull, this place song Durham's Bull that his father was famous for playing on the Opry. And he played it and he got a standing ovation. So we had to play it twice. So that's close, you know, and, and that would be an amazing feeling to get that kind of uh, love from that room, you know? uh, So I can kind of grasp what it would have been like to heard it, to have heard it, but, it was brand new. It hadn't been heard before. Nobody had heard anything like that. It was like bringing a brand new instrument into the opera that nobody had ever seen. It was complete. It was, it was played in a way that no one had ever seen anybody play. Miraculous. There's that amazing Steve Martin quote, isn't there, about before Earl Scruggs, nobody had played the banjo like that, and after, everybody did. Everybody did. Yeah. Everybody well, tried. tried yeah. Everybody tried. Yeah. They, they, uh, they did, they did try, but nobody could play with the drive and expertise that he had by the time he got to Monroe. And I think you've probably heard before that he, he auditioned for Bill Monroe. He had, he had the flu and then he, and then Bill Monroe gave him some money, sent him home on a bus and gave him enough money to come back the next weekend and play. So he felt better. He probably played better. And he, uh, I'm sure Munro was ready for round two, you know, of like, what's this guy bringing this time? It's just like, can you play this? Yes, I can play that and more. <laughs> he opened Pandora's box for everybody. And yeah, every ever since then, every banjo player that picks up a banjo and puts on a set of picks, they're trying to be Earl Scruggs. That's the first thought in their mind. And I don't know any, anybody that anybody that's ever played another instrument that's 
that could have had that feeling, you know, that, you know, you pick it up automatically. The, the sound you expect to hear is Earl Scruggs, but it's not. <laughs> it's you trying to be him and you're not yeah. him. <laughs> so yeah. it's, you're going to be disappointed at first. It's going to take a while to get to get the sound first, just the sound that you want to hear. Yeah, and it's cool. You, you sort of mentioned that drive and it is there's such a such a timing thing to like we mentioned this before when we talked but just the like most of the really cool bluegrass players that people venerate it's timing is a big part of it you know you talk about Earl Scruggs you talk about Tony Rice you talk about Clarence White the like Doc Watson with that sort of swing that Doc had timing is such a key part of those sounds isn't it and and certainly with Earl's yeah, with Earl's, with Earl's, it was a little bit more. He introduced this thing that that I had never heard before, and I seldom, I don't think anybody had actually. He would, he would lean out over the precipice of the band. You know, it's like the band is here, playing along, moving along, and Earl is sort of looking out over the edge, but he, he's not speeding up. He's just just out, just on the front edge of these guys, kind of leading them into whatever they're headed toward. And it was like, uh, like hydroplaning, like, like on the road, when there's a thin layer of water on the road, dividing you from the surface that you're supposed to be on. You're not in control. There's something else out there that is in control and is, and it's keeping you alive, hopefully. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an exhilarating feeling. To, to hear this guy, he's way out on the front edge of it, but he's not speeding. He's not increasing the level, the volume or the, the speed of the song. He's just crept out, you know, a beat in front of you, maybe almost. And he's hanging it right there. And you're just holding on, you're just holding on. And that's when you get that feeling of hydroplaning or if you've left the ground, you know. Uh, you're just floating over it. And when he'd come out of his solo, he'd come right back down into the band. And it was just beautiful gymnastics. It's so funny, isn't it? Because when you start playing an instrument, like you think the beat is the beat. And it's like a you are either right on it or, or you're wrong. And there's yeah. so many places you can be in relation to that that space that we think of as a beat. And when you kind of get your head around that and listen to people do it, it's one of the most extraordinary things. Yeah, and it's geographical in a way. Uh, I mean, if you go down and play with somebody in New Orleans, the beat's going to be in a different place than where you may be used to it. You know, like a lot of bluegrass players like to play right on the beat, right squarely on the head of the beat. And and uh, Texas, you know, dance music, things like that, especially Texas, I, I, I found I play, after playing with Buck White from Texas. That beat was just on, on the, like, if you divide the beat, the top of the beat into four segments, he was like, he was, he was a two segments on the backside. Just, just like they call it, they call it, if you hit or if you're, if you're a drummer, they call it fat back, right? You just, you just hitting, you're just hitting it right behind the beat, just enough to keep, keep everybody in time. And that beat doesn't move. But everybody else can be all around it. But that 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 drum hit when it falls, that's that's God's word. <laughs> that's where the time. That's where the beat is. 
And if you play down, you know, in Texas or, you know, sort of slower kind of places, climates, the beat is not on top. The beat is, is either on the, on, on the beat or just a little bit behind it. So, but everybody's right there with it. It's just a lifestyle. And these guys, Earl was, he was living on the front edge of things and, uh, anxious to get there. You know, this was all new. So he was probably pretty excited too. And, uh, but he didn't leave the band. He didn't leave the band. He's just leaned out over the edge and took a look down, you know, see what's down. Do you remember the first time you heard Earl? You know, I think Earl was probably one of the first sounds I ever heard because my dad put on a record or listened to their radio show early in the morning every day of my life, every day that I can remember. So the first thing I would hear would be Lester or Earl on the radio when I was waking up. And and so, yeah, I'd say <laughs> there's a pretty good reason he's a big part of my vernacular. But see if he was the first sound I heard every day, you know, and that's what I based everything else on. And um, because of where I lived, surrounded by all these southern people, I played like them. I didn't play. You know, I didn't play like the bands in school played, like on the, you know, right on the beat or where they were told to play the beat. Uh, I was I was playing band ener- energy at that point, you know, when I first started to learn to play. But uh, Earl Scruggs was probably the first sound I ever heard. Yeah, and I and I loved that sound. I loved the way he sounded. And then when Josh Graves, when I realized this guy was in the band playing this bluesy instrument that could sustain and do all these other things and support Earl, support instruments. And, but at the same time, he could play solos that were on fire that were just as fast as Earl's solos. And I thought, that's what I want to be able to do. That's, that's what grabbed my ear then. And do you feel like, because um, I've heard you talk about Earls of Leicester sort of getting together and almost the sense that you felt that sound had sort of disappeared a bit and people had forgotten that it was there and it needed to be rather than just a project you wanted to do because you enjoyed it. It was almost a, a kind of needing to show people that this still existed. It was sort of a calling. It was sort of like, well, I don't hear them anymore, you know, and, and they're a big reason why we're here in the first place. Let's go back and let's go back and reintroduce this. It's not corny. It's not, we haven't outgrown it. We're not above it. This is, this is, this is education 101, but it, it, it is, uh, it is something that's going to influence you all through your life, all through your career all through your playing career, you're going to be able to revert back to this and listen to this and get fresh ideas from something that's happened 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And it had totally disappeared. I mean, people were playing banjos and guitars and fiddles and basses and all those things and being in bluegrass bands, but they had been influenced by Alan Shelton and, you know, banjo players that had come after Earl that, had sort of 
there were a few that were just like Scruggs is it. I won't, we'll listen to anybody else. There were a few, but, but, uh, but there were innovators, you know, like there should be in innovation through music, but it, it had uh, sort of washed out the, uh, the real, uh, stepping stones, the real, the real, the real teaching marks of a banjo, of a true banjo player, of, of, of when to drive, when to, when to, when to, to, to tuck back in, you know, and when to be powerful, but, but to how to be, how to be involved in the band and not take over the sound of the band, but still have the sound of the instrument there throughout the song. You know, it, that's, that's to me, that's bluegrass. And, uh, the banjo is so, so important in it. And the mandolin is too, but like, uh, like I said before, I think they made a deal where Monroe was more, he was the mandolin driven band. They were the banjo driven band. They had a mandolin player, but he wasn't as forceful, didn't, didn't play as major a role in their sound. And I think that was maybe a thing they gave up, uh, to, to honor Bill Monroe, you know, to give him his due. And, but they went on, they went on to like such, so many greater things and to do so much for bluegrass music, but did not call themselves a bluegrass music band. Uh, called themselves a country music band. And, uh, and that's what they were at that point. Country music was country music. <laughs> you know, it was a music that started on the porch and could go anywhere. It was, it didn't rely on electricity or sound systems. And that, that came later, that came later as the crowds grew, as the, as the country music became more popular and the audiences got bigger, they needed sound systems to be able to carry that sound far enough for, to reach the end of the, the audience, you know, give them a true example of what they were hearing. So it's, uh, it's, it's changed even to the point where we're all plugging our instruments in, um, trying to get pickups that emulate the true sound of our instruments and not give it an electric sound just, just because we didn't want to be louder and cover the audience, but we want to at the same time maintain the sound of our instruments. So there's been a lot of hard work to go into that. And so we're all plugging in though. We're all. Uh, playing acoustic music, but we're all plugging in and it's the most expensive, uh, form of, of acoustic music there is because you have to do the invest in all this gear to make your instrument project to the edge of the audience. You know, if you're playing to five or 6,000 people, 10,000 people, instead of, you know, your neighbors, you know, as it, the way it started. So it had to stay up. It had to stay current. And, it's done a good job of that. And Billy Strings is a good, is a good, uh, example of that. I mean, uh, they have giant, they're playing arenas, giants, giants, giant, uh, electronic rigs, you know, to get their, to make their instruments sound right in a huge place like that. And that's just, you know, that's what we all dreamed about for years, you know, thinking about, Oh, we could play to those arenas too. But, uh, we weren't popular enough to do that, but he's, he's found a niche he, and uh, he's found his niche and, and no doubt there'll be others that can follow that now. 
it's a trail that's been blazed now. So we'll see what happens with it. And the interesting thing about that is the first time I saw Billy Strings, first time he came to London, was in a tiny record store. And they did, they plugged in, but they finished a set all around one mic. And a big part mm-hmm. of Earls of Leicester was about the stagecraft as well as the the kind of the music, wasn't it? It's was bringing back the, the presentation of it almost. Yeah, there's choreography involved. There's choreography of the musicians moving from one because there weren't so many microphones to play into for those guys. You know, just because of the period they were in of of uh, of electronic music and, and and just sound systems. You know, the evolution of sound systems and everything. They were forced to play to into less microphones, so they had to make room. You know, for the next guy to come through to play backup or to play his solo. And and you'll notice on on the records that the the instrument that you hear playing the backup on the chorus or the verse before the next solo is the instrument that's going to play that solo. So they were in position. You know, it was just lining up. It's like lining up like uh, uh, fighter jets on a on a on a carrier deck. You know, okay, here you go. Uh, you you back up this verse because the next the next solo is yours. So you're in position to come just dart right into the microphones, and and it and it played a it played a big part of the of the structure of the song, and also you might pick a certain instrument to play the sec- the next solo because of the subject matter of the verse that you just sang, or you know you think ahead to these things. And they did. They thought about. They thought about those things. I don't think everybody else took that into account, but they were. They were. They were tuned into a fine detail about who was going to play when. You could hear them move. You could hear them move on the records. You could hear them, the fiddle move from left to right. You know, it was like even even though it was mono recording, you can still kind of see what's going to happen. Um, they didn't move from side to side, like in stereo where you could say, I actually just watch them move, but you knew where they were in that mono picture. It's a crazy thing, but it's important. It's important in their whole sound. It was important in their sound. And, and as it is, like you were talking about with Billy, uh, we used to do the same thing with Allison on the last song of the show was, usually a gospel song and we were all around one microphone and everybody would be leaving the place going, Oh, that last song, it sounded, it was the best sounding song of the night. And that's, and so the sound guy would be just ripping his hair out because he had (laughs) all night long been trying to get that sound of, of, from all of these different microphones. And then people would walk out going, Oh, that last song was just the one microphone. (laughs) And it made such the sound guy so mad. (laughs) <laughs> every time they said why don't i just like that one just because it's one microphone because it's beautiful it's choreography you can see everybody moving around you see how the thing actually works you know yeah and it and it, it sort of shows you well, it's one of the, the beautiful things about watching kind of a string band play it's like watching a string quartet you can see the music being passed around from person to person you can see who's taking the tune next you can see people like you know, you see the bass player drag his bass forward because he's about to sing. And it just, right. like, it, it, it's like all these little tiny visual cues to what your ears are about to hear. And it just, yeah. 
there's such so much like an extra dimension to it really yeah and you're just doing a natural thing you're walking toward this thing that's going to make you louder that's going to make you present you know other otherwise you're just going to be back here in the background and playing your part adding to the the sum of the parts but then when it's time to feature that you've got to be you got to be closer to that microphone you know everybody else has to back out a little bit give you a little space and and uh then you do your part and then you back back out again and somebody else fills that gap so it's it's uh the choreography part of it was definitely gone i mean I've seen bands just stand in a straight line on stage and I don't know who's, I don't even know who's supposed to be playing, you know? And, uh, I'm, I just tell anybody that I play with, if, if when you're about to solo, if we're in the line, we've all got our own microphone back out of your microphone for a minute, step forward and give, give the sound, the sound man and the audience, the news that you're about to do something. You know, and the other people on stage, suddenly the focus will be on you if you move in such a fashion. And and uh, that's the only way that somebody's going to know sometimes who's actually taking the solo because everybody's standing there and they're expecting the sound man to do the work for them. I believe in in bringing back that old choreography just a little bit and, you know, as if you're a rock band on stage and you, and there is no microphone and you know, your solo's coming, your hair's on fire, right? <laughs> your hair's on fire. It's, it's me. It's me. Step forward and, you know, gyrations and motions and go to the floor and do a split, or play, play something great, <laughs> do something to get attention. But in bluegrass music, you got to, you, 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 you sort of depended on a microphone. So you have to, you have to work that microphone in and out of that microphone in order for people to know what's going on. Sort of the audience's audience participation part is knowing who's going to play next or who's going to sing next or some guy come out, the bass singer all of a sudden leans forward. Like you talk about the bass player drags his bass forward. That's all. Those are all signals that things are changing. You know, that, 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 you know, this is part of being a band. And I guess that like in part was also born out of the fact that, you know, in recording in the forties, you probably didn't have a mic each either. So you had to do a bit of that in the studios, you know, it's not just a live presentation. It's just how you learn to play acoustic instruments in a room with other people. Yeah. You had one microphone. Usually at one microphone, you're in a radio station and they're recording you on these big acetates, these big, loud, flat, uh, black discs. They're cutting. They're cutting it right there, right there on the spot. There's no do-over. There's no, oh, let me patch this place up. You know, like all this uh, recording that we can do now, we can fix anything. We can fix anything. But uh, back then... No, you had one microphone, or you were in that microphone, or you weren't heard. You get in that microphone, you eat that microphone, make that yours, and and uh, then when it, when your turn's over, you're out of there. Somebody else's turn. I mean, and I have to I have to say, 
with the Earls of Leicester stuff, just being being English, that name makes me laugh. <laughs> I, mean, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder how many people your side of the pond actually get it. They don't. They they don't. <laughs> it, it took forever. You know. Now they've got it. Now that we've said it enough, and you know, just kind of blanketed the whole universe with Lester, Lester. Uh, you know, tie it together, Earl and Lester. You know, if nothing else, give us that break. But uh, yeah, I just, I, I just was was leaving London, and I and I saw this street, Leicester Street, and I went, "That's pronounced Lester, Lester." Whoa, okay, that's the name of the band. That's the Earls of Leicester, and and then, but then I had the the <laughs> I forget who it was. Uh, I don't know. I don't actually forget who it was, but I won't embarrass them. They came in and, and to interview from Rolling Stone, and right away mispronounced the name of the band. And I had to start there. So, this is this is the the, the British pronunciation of of this word. And now you get it right. So that was my chat with Jerry Douglas. Um, funny story. We recorded that twice. I, I interviewed Jerry, and we got all the way through. And the next day, I listened to the audio, and it turned out it only recorded five minutes of his side of it, and it was all me. And you do not want that, trust me. Um, so Jerry very kindly said we'd do it again, which we did. And this interview you're hearing is the second one. Um, so yeah, and it was great. Jerry is, as you would imagine, you know, full of warmth and humour and fun and insight and depth and passion. Um, and it was a great chance to get to talk to him, and I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you, Jerry. Um, and another guest coming up now that I hadn't spoken to before, Alison Brown. Um, and this was wonderful. She was just insightful and reflective and thoughtful, and sort of talked a lot about the context. Uh, of Earl's life and when he arrived and what the music landscape was like and cultural landscape and how that shaped Earl and was shaped by Earl and just so many things I hadn't thought about. Um, so I really enjoyed this. This is Alison Brown. Yeah, Earl Scruggs was my my door into the five-string banjo. Uh, I was taking guitar lessons from a guy and um, in Connecticut when I was a kid and he brought over a copy of Earl Scruggs' Foggy Mountain banjo record and my dad made made a cassette tape of it for me and uh, labeled it Hillbilly Music. And that was my introduction to the banjo. And I just loved the sound of the instrument. I really wanted to learn how to do it. And of course, my parents were like, um, you know, first you have to stick with the guitar and then you can try the banjo. So um, I eventually talked them into getting me an expensive banjo and started making my way through the Earl Scruggs repertoire. And I think the probably the first or second thing that my teacher taught me was Cripple Creek. Scrug style. So that's, to me, that's, that's the beginning. And it's really interesting because I've heard you talk quite a bit over the years, both about how sort of fundamental Earl's playing is to the banjo, but also like acknowledging how hard it is to do as well. And that, you know, I think a lot of people pick up the banjo and try and get that right hand nailed. And it's, I, I did this years ago. I tried to play the banjo and it just wasn't for me. I ended up playing mm-hmm. guitar. Um, but it's such a, a combination of, I think you put it beautifully, actually, like the first chord on banjo is free. Once you've got it in tune, you've got a chord. You only mm-hmm. need two more chords, and then it's that right hand. Um, and it's sort of the simplest thing and the hardest thing at the same time, isn't it? Yeah, so when you said that what Earl does is hard, I mean, it's, it's, it is and it isn't. The thing I think that makes Earl Scruggs' style so classic is that um, – really many, many people can emulate what he's doing pretty well. But to really like to really get all the nuance of what he's doing, 
um, not only like the, the right hand, but also like the order of the notes and the way he uses slides and pull-offs and different kinds of articulation. When you really do a deep dive into that, that's when you really realize that God is in the details um, with Earl's playing. So that's an interesting thing. It's like, you know, he opened the door for the of the banjo, the banjo door, <laughs> for a lot of people, I think with a style that you could emulate, as opposed to you take somebody like Bela Fleck, who's paved such a wide path for the banjo. Mm-hmm. And yet to, it's it takes a lot of technical knowledge and musical knowledge to try to emulate what Bela does. But with Earl's playing, it's really simpler in a way to get a part of the way there, if that makes any sense. And I think that's what makes his style so classic for a five-street banjo. I think that's a a really interesting point. So many of the great players that I've interviewed people about on this podcast over the past couple of years, it's not the getting the notes that makes them special. It's the the way they bring the tone and the timing and the the touch and just that center themselves to it that is so hard to to totally get yeah absolutely and you know when i so when i started taking banjo lessons my parents for some reason didn't want to invest in the earl scruggs banjo book so i never learned never had the discipline of learning earl's tunes at least as exactly as they were written in that book right so i was just kind of getting the approximation from my teacher and later just kind of picking stuff up by ear learning them in parking lot jam sessions or whatever. And so now after all these years of playing, when I go back, now I do have a copy of that banjo book. And when I go back and really, really look at it, um, yeah, it's, it's like poetry. It's amazing. Like the note selection and the note order and how um, just the nuance of that is just so beautiful. It's so elegant. It's amazing how something that you've, I feel you know and it's been with you a long time can still surprise you when you go back and and actually look at the details of it it's there's always there's any kind of great music I guess or any great art you keep going back and there's always something new in there and it's it's a really exciting thing to hear yeah it is it's I mean it's it's an exciting thing to say you know I've been playing banjo for a really long time now and to be able to go back and like look at a tune like Earl's Breakdown which was one of my favorite tunes when I was a kid and like really see exactly like really trying to parse exactly how he's doing that it kind of gets back to that idea of a lot of people can approximate what earl did but when you really do the deep dive and really get into the the granular part of his playing you realize just gosh how amazing it really really was you're right it's like that's what makes it great art it's something that you can keep going back to and every time you dig into it it gives you something fresh it sounds like to somebody like me who's who sort of didn't grow up with it? It it feels like um, it feels like something that's just always been there. It's a sound that's so familiar. Like anybody <laughs> who has heard any form of Western music has probably heard some bluegrass at some point, and that is just it sounds like a thing that's always existed, rather than something that you know was in, like invented by a handful of players at the same time. But you know, predominantly Earl's the one that people associate it with, and it's not actually that old compared to so much music, but it just sounds so timeless as a thing. I know it's crazy. Well, I feel like bluegrass music was the benefited from being at the crossroads of, um, you know, technological advancement communications, like first radio and then network television. 
So when Earl Scruggs with that banjo and Beverly Hillbillies on network TV or on the Grand Old Opry with Clear Channel Radio, taking that sound to so many millions of people at one time. Um, yeah, that's. I think that that's why a lot of people think that the banjo's voice is that voice and aren't as aware of all the kinds of music that we played on the banjo, like leading up to that moment in 1945 when it crystallized on the Grand Old Opry and bluegrass music was born, as they say. It's pretty, so it's pretty interesting. It's like a marketing, it's like a marketing thing. It's like, you're right, you're absolutely right. I mean, bluegrass music is the result of, you know, kind of post-World War II industrialization of the South and kind of demographic shifts in the South. Um, so it's not that new music. And in fact, it's modern influences that shaped the birth of that music. But because it's been so broad, so broadly broadcast... Uh, through different forms of media, most people think that the banjo is just good for bank robberies and car chases. That's what banjo music is. So it's it's a fascinating story. I remember um, I used to work in a music publishing company where we had all sorts of sort of production music and library music for film and TV. And my job was to listen to music and categorize it based on the instruments and how people might use it so people could find stuff to use. And I remember saying to somebody, what, what's bluegrass music get used for? They went, oh, chasing things. <laughs> any any scene where somebody's chasing something. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, maybe that's because of Bonnie and Clyde. I don't know. I mean, but there may be another example of, you know, mass communication and bluegrass being there at the same time. It's pretty cool. It's a really interesting point, actually, because it's so, like, even my my kids' generation – don't realize how few places there used to be to get entertainment from so we all watch the same things and we all listen to the same things and <laughs> things did have like a national audience in a way that is much more fragmented now and it's really interesting that point you make about this coming along at that time that so many people would have heard it because you didn't have you know 200 channels and five streaming services and infinite radio exactly. stations and spotify that's right so we all watched the beverly hillbillies like even me growing up in southern california you know would you know go to the beach, but like make sure to be back from surfing in time to watch Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, and it's um, it's amazing how many cultural touch points that have been over the years that have sort of pushed bluegrass. There's often like a new surge in interest in bluegrass because of Oh Brother or because of you know Bonnie and Clyde or because and so many of those things are linked to Earl and he's playing with sort of Beverly Hillbillies and with Bonnie and Clyde. They're just these moments that, that bring a music into, into the spotlight and then all sorts of new stuff happens. And each time that happens, somebody takes it to a new place and it's mm-hmm. that progresses. There's a, I read something you said in an interview about, um, about when you think about where banjo can go, I can't help but think about where it's been. And that idea of reaching back and reaching forward at the same time and how sort of, it's easy to forget how progressive bluegrass is or was at the time. Absolutely. It's such a grounded sound now. that. Yeah, like folk music on overdrive. Or There's a great quote from Neil Rosenberg. It's something like that. Maybe it's folk music on overdrive or old-time music on overdrive. But the overdrive part, yeah, needs to be underlined. And that's, you know, like you could say, maybe that's just like the like the reaction of a society to such monumental change. Um, you know, after the war and uh, uh, the transformation of the kind of formerly agrarian South and the experiences of people that had to 
leave that culture and go up north and work in the oil refineries like Bill Monroe did and factories and all that stuff. I mean, I know Earl worked in a factory too, so maybe that's on some subconscious plane part of what informed like the speed of bluegrass music. But whatever it is, it's crazy to me that it reached out to me, you know, whatever, 30 years later in Southern California, and it's reached to people, reached people in cultures completely even more removed from the culture that it was created in. So, yeah, what power in that? It was interesting to think that maybe as Earl is celebrated next year, you know, or this year as people are listening to this, um, that might all start again. You know, the amount of people that would have been exposed to Doc Watson through the 100th birthday celebrations and through people like Billy Strings talking about him and there's always another generation pushing it forward. And it's it's sort of exciting to think that there are people out there who have yet to find this and get as excited about it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it, it is. And I think that it's, um, I don't know, it's still to me such a fresh and captivating sound that I think that, that it will be able to continue to transcend culture and like place, you know, and time. I think it will continue to call to people who live in circumstances even different than the ones we live in. It's just that good. And do you think um, people who discover bluegrass and string band music in years to come will always find their way back to Earl? Or do you think there'll be a point where people go back to sort of second or third generation and don't go back any further? Or do you think you, or banjo will always lead back to Earl Scruggs? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I think for some people it will some people will always be driven to go back to the like the the genesis of the sound and other people will stop you know at Bela Fleck or Don Pakilney or Kristen Scott Benson or whomever but there will always be people that will go back to the to the genesis of, of it and I think that Earl is just I don't think that you can pick up a banjo without hearing the name Earl Scruggs. So I think that there's a really good chance that anybody who gets into this instrument, even, you know, 50 or a hundred years from now will be familiar with the name Earl Scruggs. And then they'll want to know, want to check that out, you know, because if they're playing three finger style, that style is rooted in what Earl is known for having created. Yeah. There can't be that many instruments where you name them and, one name is the name that comes up over and over again. If you name mm -hmm. other instruments, there's probably several names, but if you sort of talk about five-string banjo in particular, it is associated very much with it. Although there were lots of other players around at the time and since, it's, mm -hmm. it still seems to be really attached to, to Earl Scruggs. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was, he was great, you know, and we've, well, we've already talked about how timeless what he created is. But I do think he was also the beneficiary of that moment in time with clear channel radio and network television. And he was at the epicenter of that, but you're right. And it's people... interesting. I'm thinking about the other bluegrass instruments. It's like, yeah, it is rare that you think of, you know, mandolin. Well, one guy, you know, but, but five string banjo. Yeah. Earl. It's, it is really cool actually to think about that. It's amazing. Cause like Bill Monroe pioneered a role for the mandolin, but, Chris Thiele has come along and taken it somewhere else. And, and Bayless sort of done that with the banjo as a, as a several people, but doesn't seem to be, it does seem to still be seen as that tradition in such a strong mm -hmm. way and such a strong thread through it. It's, um, it's fascinating talking to people about it because it's, 
it's it's sort of the more I talk about it with people, the more unique it seems as like the role mm-hmm. he plays in the evolution of his instrument. It's sort of a singular thing, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of anything. Well, I don't know. I mean, we talked about Doc Watson, and I know that he really did popularize, you know, the bluegrass style of you know flat top guitar picking, but. Yeah, I, it's just really just isn't the same somehow, even though um, it was, you know, listening to Doc watching them maybe want to play flat bit guitar, you know, but somehow it's not it's not quite the same as Earl Scruggs and his relationship to the banjo. And he's even, I guess, just think about it now, physically influenced. If you buy a banjo now, it's going to have a certain style of tuners on it because Earl wanted them and found a way to like even even the instrument itself has his legacy on it. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, well, you, all of these conversations, you just have such a defining role on an instrument. And yet also, she's a great guitar player. Like listening to some of those, those songs, the guitar playing is incredible on those sort of gospel tunes oh. and, and it's yeah. singing and like, you know all of it, it's, and this that that the thing about, and I hadn't really this hadn't really clicked till I was talking to people about it. But what makes the the banjo playing so special for me is that is the sort of clarity and the timing and this sort of thread of the, all the notes are so connected to each other. And that's why here in his guitar playing, it's a very similar thing. It's so it's like listening to bells almost. It's so clear. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's, yeah, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he played a D18 um, guitar on a lot of that stuff which is interesting because I always gravitate to a D18 too. And people always say, yep, banjo players always want to play a D18 for kind of that nice clear top on it that you're describing. So we've probably all got that in our ears from playing banjo. But yeah, yeah, I mean, he was remarkable. And I mean, I I didn't know Earl as well as I wished I had, but um, whenever I was around him, he was just always so gracious. And he always really, my favorite Earl memory, and you've maybe read me talking about this, but was um, going over to Earl Scruggs' house with about five guys from Japan. And they had uh, come to... Oh, okay. That's a great story. It was would have been maybe around 1990, something like that. And these guys had come from Japan to buy Earl Scruggs' model Gibson badges at the factory and then had arranged to go to Earl's house to play them for the first time in Earl's presence. <laughs> and wow. uh, I knew one of these guys, so I, I was tagging along and we all went over to Earl's house and um, he set up chairs in a circle and he sat there, you know, kind of the head of the circle and all these, you know, backing everybody up as they played his tunes. I don't know if he even took one solo. He was just there to support them and, you know, kind of achieving their wish of playing their instruments for the first time in his presence. And that just really struck me. Um, just that he... I don't know that he wasn't that egotistical that he would be like kicking everything off and like showing you how it's done. Instead, he was just hanging back and backing us all up. And that's, that's really, that's really stayed with me. It's interesting because a couple of people have mentioned sort of how sympathetic and accompanist Earl was. And because he's renowned for this quite, you know, dexterous, what could seem flashy style of, picking Mm -hmm. and yet people talk about in the same way that when I talked with people about Tony Rice earlier in the year people talked about his incredible lead playing but they also really wanted to talk about his rhythm playing and just that sense of 
like it's really hard to be a great musician without being a really good listener. Right. And I've, you've probably read the same things that I have, but just how he would really reflect on the lyrics of a song, like thinking about how he would back play backup. He was really listening to the lyrics and what the vocalist was doing and really trying to like have that intricate dance around the vocal, which, you know, not all people do. Um, and you're right. I mean, the banjo can be such a domineering instrument in a bluegrass context, but he really wove his sound into the overall tapestry of the music as opposed to just like spreading itself all over the top of it. And that's pretty cool too. Yeah. Yeah. There's not really a bigger compliment you could give a musician than that. I don't think, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to make a song better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. He was really quite remarkable. It's, it's great kind of reflecting on these things and really just does pull forward how remarkable uh, what Earl did is, you know, and a, a lot of people might say there are, you know, the style that he is known for was kind of percolating around him, but he is the one who took it uh, to the national stage. That's true. But then when also when you really dig into his recordings, you can just see how deep what he's doing is and how nuanced and how much power there is and thought, you know, and that goes into the architecture of the way he's playing. And that certainly extends to his backup too, you know, just the architecture of the music. It's interesting the the way you sort of mentioned that, that if he'd been around, I don't know, 20 years before, maybe recording technology wouldn't have been mm-hmm. quite good enough for us to, to hear that power. I mean, you'd, you would still, you'd hear the power and you'd hear the, the presence of the instrument, but, but recording technology by the 40s was a lot better than it was in the 20s in terms of microphones and, and how things were, were captured. And so mm-hmm. it is, it's really interesting. I guess you can't separate people from their context. It is such a a combination of people and the people they were playing with at the time they were playing and what was going on in the world around them. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's truly fascinating. It's like the way that, you know, Earl and Bill Monroe and Lester Flatt, their, their kind of childhood experiences and the way they grew up and the society that they were growing up in. And then as, as young adults, and it all kind of goes into the big stew that created bluegrass music. You know, the hard times that they grew up in and the changing, uh, kind of just changing society around them. It's, it's truly fascinating. So, you know, I mean, the, the climate probably wasn't there for bluegrass to happen 20 years earlier. You know, you needed to mm. go through, go through the forties and the war and the depression and all that stuff. Cause I mean, a lot of bluegrass music is, you know, built on hard times and yeah, I mean, hard times then I think was something even different than hard times now, you know, um, in terms of just how hard they were. So there was a lot of sacrifice and everything that went into life back then, I think, um, so I know that that's, that's really informing what's going on, too. It is so cool to think about, you know, any kind of art and the times that it's created and, and how that informs the ultimate shape of the art. And that was Alison Brown. Um, the final guest in this episode is somebody I've spoken to a couple of times before, and it is always a treat to talk to, is Tim O'Brien. And Tim, just full of interesting insight and knowledge about Earl, um, but, you know... The, the sound Earl made and why it was cool, why it was important, the place it had in the history of bluegrass. But also we chatted a bit about Louise Scruggs, um, who was very influential in Earl and Lester's career and, you know, an interesting 
person in her own right and it was great to chat to Tim about that a bit we talked a bit about him spending some time with Earl and with Louise um, and yeah again just a great chance to, to talk to Tim and I really enjoyed this one so here comes Tim O'Brien we sort of exchanged a couple of messages a couple of months ago after IBMA and I mentioned to you that I was doing this and your immediate response was I think exactly what you said was it's hard to say out loud but Earl is just as important as Munro yeah it's a uh, John Harper's on record saying that he said that Lefter and Earl were just as important as Bill Monroe as far as getting that sound and forming it. And uh, the thing that excited people like him. And, uh, you know, M- Monroe was, uh, he was interested in, you know, great musician. But I think one of the things that happened was um, with the addition of Lester Platt, he had a better singer. He had also a better, you know, better timekeeper with him and also with, uh, Howard Watts was kind of a big addition to that band as well. Kind of more defined role of the bass, uh, both uh, his singing and his playing. But then uh, with Scruggs, it's like finally he had somebody that he could play against. Uh, he sort of, uh, they could, you know, Earl would talk about how they would feud, uh, you know, feud between the instruments, like, I'll come up and kind of pop you and show you what I can do. And then you go up and do that. And then you go back and forth. And it kind of, I think it escalated, you know, it kind of rose the music, kind of lifted it up. Um, I think also at the time, um, it was something that really set Monroe apart. It made bluegrass into a thing that was, you know, his music was radical when he started on the Opry in 39. But I think uh, having that banjo, it was kind of, you know, regional styles were just getting homogenized. And this was a new sound to a lot of listeners. And uh, the idea of that, that, that banjo uh, really, particularly in his hands, because he, he was so musical. He, he was a great composer of his solos. He could make a, uh, a, a coherent sounding solo that uh, people understood, but he would, he just had a facility about both his left hand up and down the neck, as well as his right hand, um, you know, and being like 22 years old and just, you know, Oh, I've got this thing that I can do. And somehow it seems to be working right within this music that Bill's been doing. And uh, I think it was, uh, it was uh, it really you know, it caused everybody to sort of focus in more. And, um, you know, other banjo players came along. Certainly uh, Don Reno, Rudy Lyle, who, f- who followed him, were great. But in the context of what they were doing, Earl was, and really, really when you compare them all, Earl's still the guy who's the most musical and the most, his time and his expression of, of the musical ideas was very refined. It was very easily understood. And uh, it transferred, of course, banjo loves microphones and it transferred to the radio really well. You know. Yeah. And it's hard sort of for me listening back, trying to work out kind of how things developed at the time and how it would have been like to hear them at the time. There's that definite sort of sense listening to a lot of the older recordings that the fiddle was often the instrument that took the leads and kind of carried the energy in that sort of way. And then when Bill Monroe came along, the mandolin sort of joined it as having lead potential 
yeah. and then and then with Earl the banjo sort of stepped up to that as well. Right, and it's and, it's, and it, when you get those multiple instruments capable of doing that, yeah, there's a, there's an energy that maybe wasn't there before. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it really, um, I mean, it's just you know his excellence, and uh, I think you know he was kind of cagey when he joined Monroe. He kind of he's you know uh, they said come over and and play, and they played until his bus had to leave. He was there on a Saturday night. And he said, yeah, well, my boss has got to leave. And Monroe said, this was Saturday night. He goes, all right, we'll come back on Monday. And he said, well, wait a minute. I haven't even talked to you about what I'm getting paid. And plus, I got the flu, and I want to get better, and I got to go home and deal with my mother and you know, sort things out before I come back here. And so Monroe said, okay, well, uh, fine. And he came back the following Saturday. And I think Monroe said, okay, well, this, you know, I'll deal with this guy because I think it's – important flat really liked him and uh and then uh you know the reaction the reaction on the air i think was a clue to monroe that oh this is really good uh i mean he was doubtful he wasn't sure after hearing him but flat said i'd hire him whatever it costs and he went oh okay well let's try this and then it proved to be true even when he went to record Art Satherly said, where did you get this guy? He's really good. And uh, and then I was reading, too, was that at the time, um, country music was kind of starting to go uptown a little bit with people like Bob Wills and, um, you know, electric guitars were coming in. And uh, some of that, particularly, I guess, the Western swing stuff, the, the, the instrumentation and, you know, fancy soloing and improvised soloing was really kind of popular jazz was more popular and it was bleeding into the country music thing that way. And Bill was able to incorporate something like that within his, uh, uh, his own band. You know, uh, Peter Owen said something on an interview I'd heard recently where he said, uh, he actually took those guys down to new Orleans for like a couple weeks and maybe they were playing radio or something. He wanted them to hear the music. He wanted to Mm -hmm. take them out and hear Hear people play the blues and play jazz and stuff, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, and that, that sort of blues influence is such a strong part of it. And I think you know that it's and it's, it is interesting because at that point, probably sort of jazz and swing music was sort of the big thing, and yeah. there's elements of that that come into it. And you know, you listen back now, and there's so much crossover between sort of string band music and swing in the decades since then. Yes. Yes. It's really, uh, it's hard to, hard to, uh, ignore it. It's just was pervasive. And, uh, but you know, um, you know, when he, when Monroe got, he tried him out on like, before they even recorded, they tried stuff like, uh, footprints in the snow on stage. And I think little Maggie, what did I write down? Little Maggie, a couple, three songs that, you know, he would have played with Charlie, uh, Molly and Timbrooks, rolling in my sweet baby's arms, you know, which became a real standard in bluegrass. Um, that and uh, it, you know those. He said, "Oh, he, he probably thought, oh, well, this is somebody who can, you know, we can do these fast numbers, but it's not just me doing the big solos." 
You know, and, and when he played with Charlie, he was a big star. He was phenomenal. There was no doubt about his instrumental ability. But it was kind of a one-man. I mean, they were great duet singers, and Charlie was a, a great rhythm guitar player. But this was a multi, uh, like a three three people on the front line playing solos was kind of pretty remarkable. And uh, I don't know, Chubby, they're just, just, you know, that band is just sort of perfect in so many ways because they put this template up that hasn't really been improved on. Um, the, the, the banjo subdividing the beat really, you know, if their timing was good to begin with, they could really tell what was going on and they could really lock in and lean into each other. I mean, it's like a, it's like a, a, a chain link fence you can lean against, you know, subdivides the whole thing. It's, uh, it's remarkable the, the way it can draw people together. You know, in bebop, it's the ride symbol playing all the time, and you can tell that. But uh, this was everybody was lot. It was like tongue and groove. Everything's kind of fitting together. Some of the stuff where uh, you know Bill could play harmony to Chubby Wise's fiddle uh, or to Lester's vocal if he was doing a solo, and, and there was plenty of you know backing to keep it from falling apart when that happened. And uh, I don't know. I think Monroe, you know, it. I, I think it must have inspired him, and I think it inspired uh, Scruggs to play with Monroe. It, you know, like he, like I said, he was wary. He wondered. He kind of didn't like the music business, and he he was about ready to quit it. And Jim Ains, or Jim uh, Shoemate, Jim Shoemate said, uh, "Well, why don't you try out for this gig?" And so he did, and we just uh, were benefit of it. And it's got that 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 um, I think what the, maybe the three finger thing brings is that syncopation that you get like and get it in rock and roll as well. The sort of the Chuck Berry thing of this really pretty straight rhythm, and then it'll, the solos just go across the beat, across the beat, across the beat, and it's that. Yeah, I don't know. If, was that sort of level of syncopation there in the Monroe music before it arrived? I don't think so. I never thought of it that way, but you're right. It, I don't think it was there, uh, and. Uh, the three across two or four or whatever is really, that's a big part of it. It's very exciting, isn't it? It's like, uh, I mean, Bill may have played that kind of thing a little bit, but uh, his thing was more like a constant right hand kind of going all the time, solid eighths notes, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't have gone, you know, they wouldn't have arpeggiated that way. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that's really an exciting element that, it just was accidental, but I, you know, maybe it's just because you have a thumb and three, two fingers, you're going to do three over two. I don't know, but I mean, uh, Scruggs was again. He's just so excellent. His uh, musicianship, his sense of music, of what was appropriate, and and his time, his his sound, very clean and very beautiful sound that he brought to it. And um, being on the Opry, like it would be really inspiring to have people hear you. And they must have had a lot of fan letters. And the audience at the Opry, you can hear them on those live checks. People are going crazy for it. They're just absolutely nuts for it. And, uh, you know, that causes your band leader to kind of sit up and listen and say, this this is good for the music. So immediately when they left, he immediately hired somebody that could try to do that the same way. And uh, um, 
first, you know, and then uh, Rudy Lyle and, and, and on from there. But they were all uh, generally after that, everyone was following Scruggs. The other thing that's happened is uh, there was a recording ban uh, that happened and they snuck their recordings together in right before that happened. And um, a lot of that stuff didn't come out until after the ban was lifted, which and which and and also at that that same time they had started on their own doing Flatten Scruggs with Foggy Mountain Boys. So um, bluegrass, the name of this genre and calling it bluegrass was kind of starting then when people would say to to Flat, why don't you sing some of those old bluegrass songs, meaning the stuff that they played with Bill Monroe on the air. And and they started singing Why oh, Why Did You Wonder. They ended up recording it. They recorded Rolling in Sweet Baby's Arms, you know. And Monroe, <clears throat> he was already mad at the Stanley Brothers because they, they weren't in the union, so they recorded Molly and Tinbrooks during that band. Somebody else did something of theirs, too. I can't remember who it was. Recorded one of their songs that they played on the air. So these people started imitating him and imitating them and that particular band. And they started calling that bluegrass. And uh, Monroe, you can see why he got mad, because he said, these were my side band, and now they're playing, and they, you know, they're stealing my thunder. And also, I think he was really sad that they left. I mean, it's just, it was a big loss. They were, Bill was like a big star then. He had the big tent shows in the summer and everything, and he was one of the biggest draws. Um, and he was kind of, that was kind of happening before they joined, but I think it really solidified them. And, uh, you know, he, I don't know. I, I don't really know. Maybe you can ask one of your other uh, interviewees, but, um, like when he hired string bean, he hired him apparently first because he could play baseball well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he didn't even maybe think about him playing music and then he joined the band. And I don't know what I've seen pictures of the the classic band with Earl and Lester mm-hmm. and Chubby, you know, in baseball uniforms. So maybe maybe Scruggs did play, but but you know, I wondered if he you know was regretted that he maybe wasn't as good a player as as Stringbane had been as far as on the ball field. But he didn't need him on the ball field; he wanted him on stage. You know, this was a new thing. And it's also that sort of element around then of the banjo player being the comedian in the band, and you know if if somebody's not a great ball player and they're not a great comedian, but they can play the banjo like that, they're going to be in your band every day of the week, aren't they? Right. Right. You know, the story about, uh, he would, they would go on these, uh, tours, the tent show tours, and he would room with, uh, uncle Dave Macon and, uh, uncle Dave Macon, there was, Dave Macon was kind of lying in bed and he had his, I guess he slept with his clothes on. He had his little hat kind of going up and down with his breath on his on his stomach and he said you're a good banjo picker but you ain't a damn bit funny he told him that <laughs> and uh he went well whatever but uh yeah i mean uh i think that earl's uh musicianship and then their the bluegrass music you know the people imitating it um it becoming a genre and flattened scruggs was Another great thing for bluegrass in that it it was a much more business wise a much more together organization 
they kept their band and uh you know those guys uh were kind of partners um you know they were kind of they were equal members but i think they had a better organization they kind of had a they had a little security because they were well not only were they doing well but i think they paid them more he, you know I, I know that i know that earl used to take the money for bill monroe at these schoolhouse shows and things and uh he, he told, uh, I think Pete Wernick, he told him, said, you know, I saw all this money coming in and I saw what I was getting. He said, it just didn't seem right. <laughs> so, you know, he took it all with a grain of salt. He was very uh, aware of all sides of it, you know. And when he was wary of taking the gig, he's, not only was he wanted to know what he was going to get paid, but he also had heard Monroe's kind of a little quirky. And so uh, he just wanted to see what he was getting into. And, of course, it it only lasted a few years, but it made an amazing impression. And then they went on from there. And I'd say that uh, Latin Scruggs, being a, well, a much better managed organization, they were able to bring, bring bluegrass to more people. And, you know, they had not only great instrumentals, but they were, they were funny. They had a show. I mean, uh, when they got Jake Tullock, he really put on a, you know, a great comedy bit. And um, and Josh Graves, they were kind of a team on that. So that those other guys could be the front men and sort of the serious ones. And they could actually even leave the stage and let those guys do that. So they had, you know, Monroe was, uh, you know, on to the next, what's the spotty band I'm putting together this week? You know, who's playing? And I'm paying him out of a roll of, bills in my pocket instead of and based on what's in my pocket as opposed to uh what i told him i'd pay him you know and uh so those other guys were kind of like loyal to flatten scruggs more than monroe's sidemen were to him you still get the sense as well um and you may know about this but just from the things i've read that a big part of that um organization and sort of holding it all together was down to louise yeah louise was really sharp and um, she became one of the great managers, really. Uh, and uh, she was really catchy. She, I mean, she was really uh, imaginative to, as well. You know, like when um, they went to play Carnegie Hall, she said, well, we need to make a recording of this. And the people at Columbia said... How would we do that? And she said, well, you'd get a tape recorder and you'd set it up there, you dummies. And they did it. And that was that was fantastic. You know, that's an amazing boost. Uh, Carnegie Hall is sort of a stamp of approval and putting it out on, on Columbia was really a big thing. And uh, like Newport Folk Festival, she saw that they wanted him to play. They wanted Flat Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys to come. He, Flat didn't want to go. He thought that's that's not our audience, and somehow they they went without flat, and then they came back. You know, it was a big success, and uh, the folk music opening up them the bluegrass to folk music was really they did a lot for that, and uh, you know, uh, and because they were more available and uh, kind of more together. They started showing, I mean, there was an interview 
or, or story that Ralph Rensler wrote on bluegrass and how and he interviewed, I think, Louise and Earl Scruggs, maybe. And it didn't talk much about Bill Monroe, and that really made Monroe mad. But see, there they were. They were at the those venues, whereas Monroe wasn't. Mm. And uh, it took Ralph Rizzler to convince Bill Monroe that folk music would be a good avenue for him. And also the competition was actually flattering because it it was imitation of what he had invented. That So uh, those guys kind of started that. Platten Scruggs kind of started that process and that really helped everything and just talking to um talking to john McEwen when i did the doc watson stuff earlier in the year he was talking about how on board earl was with the will the circle be unbroken record and how kind of quick he was to see the potential of it and what a great idea it was and yeah you know, bill Monroe wasn't so sure but earl kind of got behind it helped bring doc watson on board kind of you know was yeah and i think if you're you know, you've talked about how radical some of that music was and their approaches were. And, you, you you know, you don't expect somebody who's got that in them to just sort of sit on one thing and stay there for the rest of their life. You know, you expect them to be looking for new avenues and new opportunities. Yeah. yeah. I think Bill Monroe was so proud of him. You know, he was – he had a sort of mission to beat his brother. <laughs> he really wanted to show his brother up, and he did that. And then he was a big star on the Opry, and uh, I don't think he really thought about I've invented a music or how to. I think he knew kind of what he was doing, but he. I think he kind of stumbled into Scruggs, and I think it was kind of a other people helped him with that, and uh, but he did know a good thing when he found it, so that was good. And I loved the reading about it. Scruggs said they a lot of times they they played a lot and they practiced a lot in those two years especially in the first little uh, year or so. they He said they a lot of times they wouldn't even practice singing. they just pr- work on the sound of the band. You know, it's kind of interesting. Hmm. Uh, here we have these five elements, and how do we best organize them? Because finally we've got great players with everybody involved. Um, and that uh, there's something perfect about the subdivision of the banjo against the fiddle of chubby wise which is a lot of long notes <clears throat> kind of like this the banjo behind a vocal it's very similar and those other instruments kind of driving it along like a full rhythm section and uh you know anyway uh louise was uh she also i guess there was a there was a year where they were I don't know what year it was they made the Carter family tribute record, the Flatten Scruggs, but uh, she, um, they got snowed in. There was an ice storm or something, and she had a reel-to-reel recording. Maybe Earl was gone somewhere. I don't know. But she had a reel-to-reel recording of Carter family stuff, and she put that on, and she went, she told Earl when he got back, you ought to make a record in tribute to the Carter family. You know, that was her idea, and that was a brilliant record. And uh, the sense, Earl's and Louise's sense of the community and what the tradition, the value of the tradition, but also what else was new was coming along was they were very uh, progressive that way. Um, I wanted to tell you, they, I I met him and, and Louise. They were signing a book, or it might have been, 
they were just at an IBMA conference in Owensboro back in the early days of the of the IBMA conventions. And I got in line and I got, you know, I just said hello and and Louise knew she looked up and she said, Oh, I really like Walk the Way the Wind Blows, which was had been a hit by Kathy Matea, and she knew that I had sung that song and written the song. So I guess that was probably <clears throat> 95 or 6 or so. I don't know. I moved to Nashville in 96. And uh, in 98 or 9, I think it was it was probably the end of 98, I was making this record called The Crossing. And I asked Louise, I asked Earl and uh, through Louise if he would play. And uh, she goes, I, I call her up. And she says, hello. And I said, Louise, it's Tim O'Brien. Hello. I said, uh, how are you doing? I'm fine. She's really, you know, short uh, to the to the point, Louise. Um, I wanted to know if uh, Earl would be interested in playing on a record of mine. And she said, uh, just a minute. And she came back, like, really, just a minute later. She said, uh, he didn't want to play on a whole record. I said, well, I just want like on one song. She said, what song? And I said, well, uh, Soldier's Joy or Leather Britches or something like that. And she said, uh, just a minute. She comes back a minute later and says, Earl says he doesn't play a solo on either of those. I said, what did I play a solo? <laughs> so she agreed. And uh, it was, you know, a kind of a freak out. We got Earl Scruggs coming to the studio. And... Uh, but he came in and he played Cumberland Gap and Leather Bridges and a little medley with Frankie Gavin on the fiddle. And uh, I played mandolin. You know, it was just the three of us. And it was just kind of the blink. It was only ha- it only took like an hour at the most. And uh, between when he got there and when he left. And we didn't want to take his time. But uh, it was momentous. So then uh, I thought, well, and I have this picking party every I had started having this picking party on January 1st. So I think it was the second time it had it. My ex-wife and I put it on. So uh, still do it with your new wife. Now I do it with my new wife. <laughs> and uh, I invited them. And uh, so she says, yeah, well, send me a fax with your address on it. So they, sure enough, they came. And uh, uh, I saw them drive up in their Cadillac and I went and made sure I, you know, meet him outside and help he brought his banjo and, uh, I carried it in for him because he was, you know, his hip was bothering him and stuff. So he sat down and I got him, you know, a little snack or whatever. He got some libation or whatever. And, uh, some people started picking right after he got there. And I said, Earl, anytime you want me to get your banjo for you, uh, let me know. He said, now would be a good time. (laughs) <laughs> you know? so he gets the banjo and all of a sudden the jam kind of coalesced uh there was a guy named uh michael henderson who just uh passed away a great uh blues player a guitarist and singer who later started the bluegrass band called the steel drivers he was the mandolin player and uh played some slide resonator guitar in that band so he gets his mandolin so they're right over there picking and it's going great and stuff. So that was like, okay, this is just fine. And then uh, 
you know, I was kind of, in some ways I was relieved when they left because I, then I didn't have to, you know, be on my best behavior necessarily. Everybody else was my contemporaries nearly, you know. But anyway, uh, then you, for years, for the next several years, you would see, uh, well, I started getting invited to Earl's and Lisa's house for, they would have a picking party around his birthday every year. And sometimes they would have one in the summer too. So sort of maybe twice a year they'd have something out their house. And, uh, you know, it was a nice house with a lot of white carpet and a lot of white leather and stuff. And you, you know, you're afraid of spilling something. And, uh, but all these people are there, uh, Jim and Jesse, uh, you know, um, Mac Wiseman, um, Oswald Kirby would be there, you know, people just mm. a, a who's who and uh, Marty Stewart, you know, and uh, it, it would be, and then, you know, the, the, the sons, uh, Randy and Gary would be there, you know, and I got, I wrote songs with Gary a couple of times and stuff. So I kept stepping, stayed in touch with the family. And, uh, and then when I think it was uh, 2000, 2002 or three, George, W. Bush was ramping up to invade Iraq. And uh, and I was just kind of like, I decided to have a concert in favor of peace before it happened, just because I was, I figured that would be something more constructive. And it went to the Nashville, Pe- the, it was a benefit for National Peace and Justice Center. Anyway, uh, I asked, I called up Louise and I said, uh, I wondered if Earl would be interested in, in performing at this. And she said, and this is really what she said, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. She said, no, I'm talking about them going after Saddam Hussein. He wasn't the guy. They're going after some guy that had nothing to do with this. And then she, they didn't play. He didn't play at the show. But um, that's another story. But uh, she said, she related that they had gone to the moratorium on the Vietnam War in 1969. There was two. There was one in October and then one again in, in November. And they went to the one in November. Everybody in Nashville poo-pooed the idea of them doing that. It was very controversial. And she said, uh, Nashville paper reported that there was 50,000 people there, but there was apparently 250,000 people there. And, uh, that just shows you what what happens with the press. And she was very wary of all. She was very, you know, she was very uh, aware, very savvy, Louise. Earl was savvy too, but he let her kind of steer a lot of that stuff, you know, the business stuff. And uh, you know, when he went to Japan, she was there, and she was, you know, making sure they got paid. And. Uh, I'm, I bet she had something to do with them getting their Beverly Hillbillies thing. Uh, I know they turned it down at first because they thought it was going to be demeaning to country people like them. But then they showed them the pilot and they went, oh, maybe we do this. And uh, that was smart, you know, very smart. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, the Bonnie and Clyde soundtrack kind of thing kind of just fell in their lap. Um, but, um, oh, I was going to tell you, Sonny Osborne, I've heard him talking about it and I don't know if it was a, 
if I was listening to him in person or if he was telling me, but he said Louise was the toughest booking agent and their success was such. He was there visiting Earl one time and they were in the kitchen, I think, and the phone rang and she's talking to this promoter and she says, well, we need this month, this amount of money. Uh, and the guy was him and Han. She said, you know, in the space of 30 seconds, she said, we need this money. And then 30 seconds later, well, we got other, other promoters that want us that date, those dates. Then 30 seconds later, she says, you have two minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she just, and the guy didn't, didn't bite and she hung up the phone. And that's the way, that's the way she was. She knew exactly what she was dealing with and she wasn't going to mess around. And that's it. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Some really interesting conversations in there. I such a treat getting to do these. Um, do go and check out episode one if you haven't heard it. I'll be back next week with more guests. Um, I've I had some ch- a chat with some younger pickers. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about Earl's influence on a new generation. So I talked to Carl Tuttle, um, who is a great banjo player, played with Molly Tuttle and Golden Highway. I also talked to Trey Hensley, fantastic guitar player, who um, spent some time with Earl, um, Earl was a massive influence on him, and I also talked to Willow Osborne, sort of a sort of next generation up and coming banjo player, um, and that was fascinating as well. So come back and hear those next week. Um, I really hope you've enjoyed these. It's a lot of fun putting these together, and it's great getting to celebrate Earl with some people who are really passionate about him and his music. Um, but I will see you next time. Have a great week and happy picking. <laughs>